All right. Well, I encourage you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. This year, our theme for this season, this Advent season, is beginnings. And my prayer is, as the elders' prayer is, that we all individually and collectively as a body of Christians experience God's grace in a new and fresh way during this season. I also pray that we would be joyfully sharing our experience with Christ with others in our community so they too can begin a new life with God through Christ. What we've been doing the last few weeks, we're looking at the beginnings of each of the four Gospels, and we're asking the question, how does each evangelist start his account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? What's the entering, entrance point into the story? What's, what's important to each of them to highlight as he introduces us to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us? As you might remember, Matthew started with Jesus' family, talked about the dysfunction of his family and the grace that comes to all of us through Christ. Mark, we talked about it last week, began with Jesus' experience in the wilderness and in the water of baptism, his identification with us in our struggle and our sin and redemption that comes through his work. So how does Luke begin his gospel? Well, he takes a different approach, and he starts with two angelic appearances. The same angel, Gabriel, appears first to Zechariah and announces the birth of John the Baptist, and then appears to Mary and announces the birth of Jesus our Lord. So let's read Our passage, this is a little bit of a longer passage, Luke 1, verse 1 through 38, 1 through 38. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, 
and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Well, there are two angelic announcements. First, the angel comes to Zechariah, tells him that his son will prepare the people for the coming of the Savior. Then the angel comes to Mary and tells her that her son will be that long-awaited Savior. Zechariah and Elizabeth are both uh, old and they're not expecting a pregnancy at this time. So John's birth is a surprising work of God for them. Mary is a virgin, so Jesus' birth is even a greater miracle. Now I want us to look at these two angelic messages and consider 
how Zechariah and Mary responded to them. And then I'd like us to hear the message that Luke's, Luke's beginning, his gospel, has for us and consider our own response to it. So our outline is simple. Number one, message to the priest in his response. Number two, message to the virgin and her response. And number three, message to the church and our response. Message to the priest, message to the virgin, and message to the church. Please keep your Bibles open because we're going to walk through this passage and see just how rich in detail and application it is. Now we start with Zechariah. He was a priest, a very important role in Israel. He was a good priest. At this time, under Herod's rule, there were many corrupt priests. Priesthood was not in the best of shapes, and yet Zechariah was a good priest. He was following the Lord, keeping his commandments, walking blamelessly before him. He was married to Elizabeth, who herself was a remarkable woman. In those days, there was a saying... She is such a great woman, she ought to marry a priest, people said. So you had to be of a very great reputation to be married to a priest. So I'm sure Zechariah was very happy to be married to such a remarkable woman. On top of that, she, she was also from a priestly line herself. So Zechariah's marriage was, was doubly blessed. It was a doubly priestly family. Uh, a special marriage that was to produce these, these heirs and these children that were specially blessed. But they had no child. They were getting old and there were no children. Now do you see how in the midst of what might be described as an ideal life, there is a deep sadness. They tried and they prayed for decades, but no children. A strong marriage, a great job, a wonderful reputation for both of them, and yet none of that could erase the feeling of disappointment and disillusionment and a deep sorrow in their hearts. If someone were to write a paragraph about your life, what would that but be in your paragraph? Zechariah was a great priest, but... He had no child. Elizabeth was a remarkable woman, but she could not be pregnant. So if you think about your life, someone were to write a paragraph about your life, what is that but, that yet, that nevertheless, that is in your life? He was a good father and husband, respected by friends, but he never found a fulfilling career. He was a wonderful person, but his life was plagued by chronic illness. She was a godly woman, but all her life she struggled in a dysfunctional marriage. She was a great kid, but she felt lonely and isolated in school. He was a gifted person, but his mental illness limited his potential. He was an accomplished person, but he never reconciled to his sister. She was a remarkable person, but she never found her soulmate. Now, I'm using common examples to make a point that we all have something in our lives that undermines the happiness caused by all the other good things in life. So what is it for you? When you are alone, 
What is the one thing that you wish could be different in your life? What is that regret, that unfulfilled hope, that expectation that you had had maybe for years, for decades, that now you know it's not coming true, it's not going to change? What is that deep sorrow in your heart? I'm pushing you there, and I know that it's painful to consider that. For many of us, we'd like to mask the deep sorrow with other things that are good in our lives. But I'm pushing you there because I want you to identify with Zechariah and Elizabeth. I want us to see that there's no life out there that is perfect. There's always something in anyone's life that produces the deeper disillusionment and disappointment. Everything could be great, but there's that one thing. There's something that is not the way it should be. Do you feel that? As you think about it, as you reflect on that, I want you to identify it. I want you to face it. I want you to be honest with what it is. That's where Zechariah and Elizabeth are. They're wrestling with that. Everything is great, but they have no children. So Zechariah goes to the temple to burn incense in the holy part of the sanctuary. This is an incredible opportunity for him. The priests were divided into 24 divisions in Israel. He was one of the 24 divisions of priests. And each division took a week, twice a year, to serve at the temple. There was only one temple, but many priests. And in that division, a lot would be cast to identify one priest for that specific time in the morning or in the evening to offer incense to the Lord in the holy place in the sanctuary. Not in the holy of holies where only a high priest could go, but in the holy place in the sanctuary. At best, if you were a priest, at best you would expect it to happen to you once in a lifetime. There were many priests. And so if you were so fortunate that Lot was cast and it fell on you and, and you were selected to offer incense at the temple or to do something else like that, you would feel tremendously privileged and you would feel that this is the closest you would ever get to God. This is the deepest you would go into the temple. You would be representing the whole people of Israel. This is a very important time and this will never happen again to you. So these are the emotions that Zechariah is walking into the temple with. He has a great life. There's this incredible event that is happening. He knows this is very, very important. And yet he also knows there's a deep sorrow in his heart. He remembers that he has no children. And so he goes into it. Nothing more exciting could happen except that an angel appears. There's an angel standing right by the altar of incense. Of course, Zechariah is anyone else in the scriptures and anyone else in our experience. When you see an angel, you're automatically struck with fear. They don't show up unless there's a good reason for them to be there. They come directly from God with a message on God's authority. This is not something you mess around with. And so Zechariah is scared, as anybody would be. And so the angel, the first thing he says, and the first thing most angels say when they see us, they say, don't be afraid. <laughs> Settle down. It's going to be okay. You're not in trouble. And so Zechariah, now reassured, he is wondering what this message from God is. 
And so the angel says, here's the message from God to you. Your prayer has been heard. You will have a son. He will be great like Elijah. And he will prepare people for the Lord. The deep sorrow in his heart is replaced with great joy. In fact, the angel says, you will greatly rejoice over this child, and this child will bring gladness to many people. God is answering that prayer even now. As exciting as it is to be speaking to an angel in the holy part of the temple on that one event in your lifetime for Zechariah, there's something that's happening here that is much more incredible than we can understand at first reading of the text. Let me explain. The angel brings a message from God to this particular priest. And you think, big deal. You read the Bible, there are a few angels that show up. God does speak to his people quite a bit. God communicates with his people seemingly all the time throughout the scriptures. Except that at this point, God had been silent for 400 years. Between the Testaments, which, as you read it, you simply turn one page, right? But there's a gap of 400 years where God did not speak. There were no prophets. There were no angels coming and talking to people. God was silent between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. In fact, this angel coming to Zechariah is the time when God breaks that 400-year Silence. So yes, it's exciting an angel is talking to him, but he knows what's happening here. He's a priest. He's read the scriptures. In fact, let me take you, go back to the Old Testament, and so turn back to the Old Testament, and I'd like you to look at the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. So it's right before Matthew, the book of Malachi. I'd like you to turn to the last page of that book, of Malachi. I'd like you to look at the last chapter, chapter 4 of Malachi. And I'd like you to look at the last two verses of that book, the last paragraph recorded before God decided to be silent for 400 years. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We just read that in Luke. When the angel shows up and God breaks his 400-year silence, he picks up exactly where he left off. This is amazing. He's going right back to that last prophecy, and he's saying to Zechariah, now it's being fulfilled. So never mind the 400-year pause. It's as if God is stopped in the middle of the sentence, paused, and now he's continuing speaking. But there's 400 years in between. The angel promises a child to an old priest that will do exactly what the old prophecy from Malachi said he was going to do. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah the angel says, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God, who was silent for 400 years, 
is speaking again. This isn't just a regular message from an angel to a priest. This is God speaking again to his people. And he picks up exactly where he left off. So there's a continuation of, of God's promise and God's fulfillment and God's plan. Zechariah can't believe it. I mean, it's an honor to be in the sanctuary and to burn incense. But maybe he's thinking, maybe I put a little bit too much of that incense on the altar. This, this is incredible. God, God is speaking again to his people. And there's an angel right here talking to me. So what this teaches us is that God throughout this intermediary period between the Testaments, God never lost focus. He has been at work this whole time. His plan was never in question. And even though for 400 years Israel felt abandoned by God, God never even for a moment took his eyes off of his people. Don't you see what this angelic pronouncement to Zechariah means? God is fulfilling purposes, his promises. God is following through on his purposes. God is doing what he said he was going to do. God is just as faithful to Israel as he has ever been. The 400 year silence was part of the plan, and now the next phase of that plan is on. He said he's going to send a prophet to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And now, speaking to Zechariah, he says, your child will be that prophet. Now we're into the next phase of my plan. God hasn't been distracted. He hasn't lost focus. He's doing exactly what he planned to do. So by way of application, let me say this. Please do not mistake God's silence for his inactivity. Do not mistake God's silence for his inactivity. He does not always have to tell you what he's doing. You don't need to know all of his plans and the intricacies of his purposes. What you need to know is that his plans can never be thwarted. That he is God who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That there is nothing accidental in God's dealings with us. That everything that happens to us has been carefully and planned and willed by the wisest and most powerful person in existence. That God keeps all of His promises. That God can choose to speak or to remain silent that God upholds and directs and governs all creatures, actions and things from the greatest even to the least, that He does that according to His foreknowledge and the free counsel of His will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, goodness and mercy. I had to go to the Westminster Confession for this. That you need to know. You need to know about God's providence. You need to know that God does exactly what He wants to do at all times and that He never loses focus. God's providence. 
Calvin said that one of the greatest miseries is to be ignorant of God's providence. I don't want you to be miserable. I want you to be happy. And so I need to tell you about God's providence. That he is involved continuously. That even when he's silent, he's not passive. That God is always working. That his plans come true. They become reality. His promises are always kept. Look at Isaiah 45, verse 5 through 7. God speaks. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God is always at work, always pursuing His perfect purposes, and always caring for His people? Now, let me show you how much He cares for His people. The angel tells Zechariah, Your prayer has been heard. So this message comes as a response to his praying. Now, what was his prayer? What was he praying for? Remember, he's in the sanctuary. He is Israel's priest. He's given this great responsibility to pray on behalf of the people before God, to burn incense as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. What is he praying about? Of course, he's praying for the redemption of Israel. Of course, he's a priest. He's supposed to bring the sins of the people before God and say, God, what are you going to do? How are you going to redeem your people? When is the Savior coming? When is this day of the Lord that we're waiting for when our enemies are going to be destroyed forever? That's what he's praying. He's praying for the redemption of Israel. And God responds to that prayer by saying, Your child will prepare my people for the coming of the Savior. But that's not all that Zechariah prayed, and that's not all that, Jesus, that God answered through this angelic announcement. Zechariah is also praying for a child. Maybe he just can't help it. I don't know. But it's in his heart. He's, he's sad about that. And so that comes out somehow. Maybe not verbally, maybe not outwardly, but God knows what's in his heart. And so that prayer, too, is answered. So redemption comes to the people of Israel partially through John the Baptist who was going to prepare the people for Jesus. And through that, the same event, a prayer for a child is answered by God as well. So both this great prayer for the redemption of the people is answered and this rather small prayer for a baby is answered in the same act of God. That's providential. God's providence is at work. God is listening to His people. God cares for His people at all times. God is always working to bless His people. This child that is now sent is a joy to his parents, to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he is also a peace in God's plan of bringing redemption to Israel. Now friends, do not mistake God's silence for his indifference. 
Do not mistake his silence for his indifference. God may not be speaking, but he is certainly listening. You may be right now in a season of your life when God is silent. Please do not think that he doesn't care. He hears your prayers. He knows all of those yets and buts and neverthelesses and howevers and all those in the paragraph that you would write or someone would write about your life. None of those are hidden from him. Whatever that deep sorrow is in your heart right now, God knows. He cares. He's listening. He listens to each one of your prayers, each one of your concerns, and He will answer all of your prayers according to His wise and careful plan. God's providence is at work in your life right now. God's providence is at work in all of God's people, bringing about these great solutions for the church. And yet, God's providence is also at work in your life for you in particular with your specific prayers. Now that's the message to Zechariah. I took some time on it because I think these are important applications. But let's move on to the young woman, to Mary. There are a lot of similarities with Zechariah's situation, but at the same time, there's a lot of contrasts and differences as well. Now the similarities are that both Zechariah and Mary are afraid. It's the same angel that speaks to both. A child is promised to both of them. Both children are named by the angel. Both are promised to be great. But here are the differences. Let's look at two. Number one, Zechariah's son John is promised to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. Mary's son, Jesus, is the Messiah. That's a big difference. If Zechariah was amazed to hear what he heard from the angel, imagine what what Mary must have thought. My baby is the king of Israel. My baby will reign over the house of Jacob forever from the throne of his father David. My baby is the savior of the world. My baby is God's own son. My baby is the redeemer long ago promised to us. And finally he's coming. He's coming through my womb. That's the announcement. God is finally sending the savior and he's going to come as a baby. This long-expected Savior is almost here. God is fulfilling His promises to His people. God's millennia-long relationship with His people is about to culminate in the coming of God's own Son as a baby. John was the last piece to be put in place. Now everything is clicking. Everything is going to be fulfilled. Everything is set for the coming of Jesus. God's covenant with Abraham. Israel's captivity in Egypt. The great exodus out of slavery. The giving of the law under Moses. The entrance into the land. The conquest and the establishment of the kingdom. David's glorious reign. The division of the kingdom in two the exile 
in Babylon, the return and the rebuilding of the temple and the city, the suffering under the various tyrants over Israel, all of that now is culminating in the angel's announcement to a young girl from Nazareth. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. How does Mary respond to that? How would you respond to that? Well, we know that Zechariah didn't do so well in his response. You know, Zechariah said, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel rightly discerns his unbelief, his lack of trust. He's asking for a sign. He's asking for proof. He's not sure that God is going to do what he just said he was going to do. So the angel gets a little upset. I think it's one of the funniest passages in Scripture. When Zechariah says, How will I know? Prove to me that God is going to do that. And the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I came here to you to tell you this. And you're going to question me? And so he says, You're going to be silent for a little bit here. Why don't you just be quiet and meditate on what I just told you? Let's just think it over. You know, look at the condition of your heart for about nine months until the baby is born. You can't tell anybody anything that you're thinking. Just keep thinking that until you realize that God can do these kind of things and you can trust Him that even though He had been silent for 400 years, He's still doing what He's doing. And now you're going to get a little taste of that as you're going to be silent for nine months. So Zechariah responds in unbelief. Now notice mercy here too. God doesn't say, God doesn't withdraw the promise of the child, right? Even though Zechariah responds in unbelief, God is disciplining him and giving him that time to grow and to change and to embrace God's promises on a deeper level. He still has the child. He's still part of God's plan. God doesn't give up on him. But that unbelief is checked. It's dealt with. He is disciplined because the Lord loves him. And so he disciplines him. Now Mary has a very different reaction, even though she says something that's very similar. Mary says, How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now it's interesting that she's not questioning whether it's going to happen. She's just kind of wondering how it's going to happen. She's thinking, okay, practically, how's it going to work? I'm a virgin. That's not how babies happen. How's it going to happen? I'm not sure the angel's answer is terribly satisfying to her. It doesn't really explain a whole lot, but it, but it underlines that it's going to be a supernatural, mysterious birth where God is going to be involved directly. And once Mary hears that, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What faith, what trust. She doesn't understand how it's going to happen still. She's a kid from Nazareth, and here the Savior is going to come as her child. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. Let it be to me exactly as the Lord says. 
I'm going to accept fully and joyfully and in faith that what he said is going to happen exactly as he said it was going to happen. The early church used to depict Mary in this posture. Arms and hands raised towards heaven in prayer. And that's how people prayed in those times. Many people prayed that way. And so in the catacombs you will see the depictions of Mary with, with her arms raised towards heaven. There's this, this posture of acceptance and trust and faith and joy before God. Saying, I am your servant. Do to me exactly as you wish. Now that depiction of Mary then began to be used of the church as a whole. And so often early Christians would identify with that posture of prayer and acceptance and would identify themselves with Mary and with that sort of compliance and obedience and trust and faith towards God. So Christians suffering from persecution in Rome and other cities would draw these pictures on the walls of their hiding places. They are raising their arms, they're raising their hands to God and they're saying, we are your servants, Lord. Do to us as you wish. Let it be done to us according to your word. So in the darkest hours of the church, this image of Mary and the open heart towards God and this, this faith towards God became a strength to the people. My question to us today is, is that your posture? I don't mean physically, even though I think it's helpful to do that physically as well. But spiritually, are you like Mary, open before God and saying, I am your servant. Do to me what you think is best and I will embrace it fully and joyfully because I trust you because you always do something good for your people because you never lose focus you never stop working so I'm going to be open with you I'm not going to keep my hands and arms to myself I'm not going to clench my fists I'm going to open my palms I'm going to raise my arms and I'm going to say do whatever you want Lord because I trust you is that your spiritual posture? Is that the disposition of your soul in prayer? Now I'm going to return to this question after we consider what message Luke's beginning has for us. So before you respond, whether it is your posture, whether that's how you see God and that's how you respond to his announcements to you, let's consider what the message is to the church today based on how Luke starts his gospel. Now, the message to Zechariah was, the Savior will come. John is coming to prepare people for him. The Savior will come. Don't question that. Don't doubt that God's plan is going to happen. The Savior will come. The message to Mary was, the Savior is coming. He's coming now. He's going to be born, this baby, and he's going to bring forgiveness of sins to his people. He's going to reign on his Father's throne in Jerusalem. Now, the message to us, based on how Luke develops these themes in the beginning of his gospel, is the Savior has come. Right? We're looking from the other side of that. These are announcements of future events, near future, but future. And for us, we look back and we say, that's already happened. Jesus has already come. The Savior is here. He has accomplished what he needed to do to save us and to redeem us. God has fulfilled his promises the people of God have been redeemed through Christ. The message we preach in and believe is about God's finished work of salvation. We live on the other side of the manger, the cross and the empty tomb. So we're looking back and our question is, 
Do we believe that message? Do we believe that God did what the scriptures say he did? Zechariah was hesitant to accept what the angel said will happen. Mary, on the other side, joyfully accepted the prospect of giving birth to the Messiah. What is your response to what God has already done in Jesus? Do you see Jesus for what he is, the fulfillment of God's promises and the culmination of God's redemptive work with his people? Is that how you see Jesus? Raising your arms and saying, this is who Jesus is. I'm here to understand, to believe. Jesus is the center and the culmination of God's purposes. The question is now whether he is the center of your life. Regardless of how you see him, he is the center and the culmination of God's purposes. The question now is whether he can become the center of your life. Because that would be consistent. Are you going to raise your arms? Are you going to open your hands and say, Jesus, you are going to be exactly who you are for me. I'm going to embrace you as you are. I'm going to accept you as the center of God's work, as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20. Paul says, For all the promises of God, there are no exceptions, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through Him, through Jesus, that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. What is Paul saying? All of God's promises are fulfilled in Jesus. The only appropriate response is a faith-filled amen to God for His glory. God says, yes, in Jesus, we say amen to God. Mary said amen to God by accepting what the angel told her. Zechariah was hesitant. He needed time to think about that. What is your reaction? What is your response? As Jesus has entered the human experience, as Jesus is the center of the redemptive work of God, as Jesus is now entering your life and he's laying claim on your life, are you going to respond to that with an amen? Are you going to recognize that he is God's yes to all those promises and say, it is literally all about Jesus? The kids in Sunday school are correct. Every answer is Jesus. And you're going to say, if that is God's yes to all his promises, then my only reaction is amen for God's glory. I'm going to switch gears a little bit, but it'll make sense in a minute, okay? Be patient. The most distinctive, arguably, the most distinctive home run call in baseball belongs to the Chicago White Sox broadcast announcer, Hawk Harrelson. If you've seen the highlights, I'll, I'll try to model it for you very imperfectly, so be, be, be gracious to me. But Hawk Harrelson is a... Most people don't like him, I don't think, but, but he's very entertaining. And this is how he would, he would call a home run. And you can easily find it online. You can easily see that. 
he would say, so let's say a White Sox player, say Abreu hits a home run, and he, he hits it, and then Hawk would say, that ball hit hard, stretch, stretch, you can put it on the board, yes! That's how he would do it. Unless it's not a home run, then it gets really awkward, because he would say, you can put it on the board, wait, what is this? And that's happened before. But there's the build-up. Because he doesn't know. He's, he's guessing it's going to be a home run. He can kind of see it, but he knows he needs to help it a little bit. So he's going to say, stretch, stretch. And then he's going to say, you can put it on the board. And that's when he's sure. See, he's almost sure that it's going to happen. And, he's, and, and the, the other guy in the booth would try to join in at some point when he is sure it's happening. Usually Hawk is first. And then he would say, you can put it on the board. And the other guy would join in. They would say, yes. And that's when the home run is and the crowd cheers. So there's a yes from the booth and there's an amen from the crowd. Right? I cannot read that 2 Corinthians 1 passage without thinking about Hawk Harrelson anymore. Whenever I come to it, I just think that's the home run. That's how Hawk would introduce what is happening in 2 Corinthians 1 when it says that all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. That's what's happening in Luke 1. All these things are coming together and God finally says yes in Jesus to all of His promises. Yes, this is how big it is. This is how incredible this is. This is where Luke starts. He's saying everything is coming together. Everything is culminating. And now there's going to be a time when Jesus comes... And that's in Luke 1, later in the chapter, Jesus comes, or in Luke 2, Jesus comes and everything is fulfilled. Everything is clicking now. There's a culmination of God's redemptive history with Israel. So let's work through the scriptures a little bit in that way. There's the build-up, right? The covenant with Abraham. Hawk would say, ball hit hard. Then there's the exodus, the kingdom. Hawk would say, stretch the exile and the return. Stretch, still stretching here. The angel announcing the birth of John, finally, in Luke 1. That's when Hawk would join in and say, you can put it on the board. And then, the angel announcing the birth of Jesus. And Hawk would say, you can put it on the board. Yes! Jesus is here. And the crowd cheers. Mary rejoices, right? Jesus is God's yes to us. All of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. You see, God promises purpose and meaning and life. And Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. God says, this is my yes to the promises. And we would respond with, Amen. Right? Jesus comes, we see Him, He is God's yes, and we say Amen to God's glory. God promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. Jesus comes as Emmanuel. God with us, forever uniting us to our God. God and man, 
two natures perfectly united in one person? God says yes, and we say amen. God promises to love us, even though we have rejected Him. And Jesus comes and He says, there is no greater love than if someone laid down his life for his friends. And He stretches out His arms on the cross in God's eternal embrace of sinners. The just dying for the unjust so He could love us forever. God says yes on the cross and we say amen. God promises joy and Jesus comes and rises from the dead declaring that even death cannot hold back the laughter of the Christian. No more sorrow for God's people. That's God's yes to the promise of joy and we respond with Amen. Everything is to be redeemed. All the promises are to be fulfilled. Our deep sorrows are turned into deeper joys. The hope of God's God's return in Christ to rule and to, to set everything right, Christ's glorious return transforms all of our buts and yets into ands. You see, what used to be in that paragraph, but he didn't, or but she couldn't, now becomes, and also he did that. And she did that. And that's become a reality now. All of our all those are transformed into not anymores. All of our howevers are transformed into whatevers. All of our neverthelesses are transformed into always and forevers. God says yes in Jesus and we say amen. Everything is redeemed in Christ. So have you said your amen to Christ? Have you embraced Him? Have you assumed that posture of prayer and acceptance, of joyful obedience to Him, both in the grand purposes of His providence in the work with His people and in the more specific work in your own life? Do you see how even your deepest sorrow can be redeemed by Christ's coming. Now what do we do at the table? We say our amen to God. That's what we do. When we walk forward, we see His body broken, we see His blood spilled, we realize that this is God's yes. God is saying yes to us right now. And so by walking forward, by taking the bread, by taking the cup, we are saying amen to His glory. We are agreeing with Him that this is the center of His work. This this is the center of reality, that everything is about Jesus and all of God's promises find their yes in Him. So if you are a Christian, if you are a person who has been redeemed by Christ, who has assumed that posture of spiritual expectation, I welcome you at this table. It's for you. You come rejoicing and saying a hearty amen to what God is doing. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to consider Jesus now. I've done my best to express to you that Jesus is 
the answer to all those questions, that Jesus is God's yes to all those longings. The question now is whether you're going to agree and say amen, whether you're going to embrace him. Is it simple? Yes. Is it difficult? Sure. Because you turn away from something even as you turn to Christ. Because to have him as your center, you have to say, I am no longer going to be the center. That's the difficulty. You have to give up on yourself and you have to say, I'm going to trust Jesus that as I come to him and as he becomes central, as he becomes the culmination of how I see God, how I see reality, it's going to be absolutely worth it. That whatever I give up, I'm going to find even a greater version of that with him because there are no regrets, there's no deep sorrow with him. So if you're not a believer, I encourage you to come to him. Say your amen for the first time to God's yes in Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then after I'm done praying, we're going to sing. If you're a believer, I encourage you to come forward. You can take communion right here up front and leave the cup back in the basket. Or you can take it with you if you need time to meditate or think or pray, repent, confess, take it back to your seat, spend some time with him in prayer, and then take it at your convenience before the service is over. If you're in the balcony, uh, there are tables and communion served there as well, so you don't have to come down. You can just go to the table that's there and take communion there. If you're unable to walk forward, we would be happy to serve it to you, so please just raise your hand and uh, an elder will bring it to you. Let's pray together.